so uh, a couple hours ago, uh, we, uh, my family got in the car and we left and went to a park where uh, Jackson Tipton was having his birthday party and all the little kids were running around and Oliver and Levi got to play and they were having fun. And I knew that we'd probably be leaving from there to come here, so I brought a change of clothes with me. And it didn't dawn on me until, uh, until after we were there that uh, I didn't bring any shoes. So, so I'm preaching in tennis shoes tonight, which I don't normally do, but, but oh well. We'll see how it goes. If it goes well, then I might start doing this more often. But uh, uh, if you would turn your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 23. Um, so this morning, we, we covered a good bit of ground in Acts. Uh, we kind of summarized a, a, quite a bit uh, to move a little bit further through the book. But we, we saw several different speeches that Paul, that Paul uh, gives. Um, he speaks to a crowd who's there at the temple when he's uh, beaten and arrested. And then we saw him appear before the Sanhedrin. And really, that speech, before it even gets going, it turns into a debate amongst his listeners. He notices that there are Pharisees there and Sadducees there. So he mentions the resurrection. And then rather than him giving a speech, they start arguing with each other about the resurrection until, remarkably, the Pharisees actually side with Paul and say he hasn't done anything wrong, which is about the only time in the Bible, I think, that the Pharisees, you know, choose uh, are like the ones on on the side of the Christian or of Jesus Um, and so uh, that's kind of a remarkable scene but then we we discussed three appearances he has before Roman appointed rulers Uh, that's going to be Felix Festus and Agrippa right in between those two events uh, is where Jesus comes to him and he tells him to take courage and he tells him that he has been his witness to those in Jerusalem, and that's everything leading up to this point. And then he says, and you will be my witness in Rome also. And that's pretty much the rest of the book of Acts is him now appearing before Roman appointed rulers and eventually making his way to Rome. But right after Jesus says those words, and I only made brief reference to it this morning, there's a plot that a group of Jerusalem Jews uh, agree to where they're going to try to have Paul killed. And that's what we're going to focus on in our lesson tonight. It's, it's an interesting plot. Uh, it's an interesting, uh, little, little exciting, um, um, I guess, uh, departure from his speeches. Like right in the middle of them, you have this interesting plot uh, about uh, them trying to assassinate Paul. And so we're going to look at that just a little bit here this evening. So it's in Acts chapter 23. And it's actually right in the middle of a couple of other plots to kill Paul. So if you go back to Acts chapter 21 in verse 30, this is when Paul first goes to the temple in Jerusalem. And he's there to make the offering. And this is when he's first arrested. The plan wasn't originally to arrest him. Uh, Paul, in uh, chapter uh, 21 verse 30 has caused the city to be up in an uproar. And it says in verse 30, Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut, and they were seeking to kill him. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So that's when the Romans show up, because really, I don't think the Romans care a tremendous amount about the stuff that goes on in Jerusalem. They certainly don't care about their arguments about their theology or the law of Moses or even things like resurrection. Uh, As you read through this, it becomes pretty obvious that they view those types of disagreements as just small, petty, internal squabbles. Uh, That's just something that they're fighting with, and I don't really care all that much about it. But here's what they do care about. 
they care about keeping the peace. They care about making sure that there's no major disruptions in the cities. Uh, they want things to go peaceably and in order. And so whenever you have riots or something like that, that's when Rome's going to get involved. So when a whole city starts going crazy like this, Rome's going to think, okay, we have to go do something. And so the commander goes in there. They kind of sort everything out. This is where Paul makes his first speech. But it begins with an attempt to kill him. So after Paul makes his first speech to them, uh, the Romans eventually have him uh, stand before the Sanhedrin, and they're thinking, okay, you guys solve this yourselves. The Sanhedrin ends up also arguing about the resurrection, and, uh, and so the Roman, uh, the Roman officials are going to have him seek, uh, appear before a Roman, and that, that's what's going to happen with uh, Felix and Festus and all of that. But when you get to chapter 23, this is the second attempt on his life, and uh, this is the, the one that we're going to be focusing on tonight. But you'll see a third one here in chapter 25 in verse, uh, verses 2 and 3. This is right as Festus this is actually a couple of years later. Festus is now going to be the, the ruler who Paul appears before. And it says, And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem at that time, setting an ambush to kill him on the way. And so, in order to save Paul from these attempts to kill him, there's three attempts, and they're all in Jerusalem, they end up having Paul tried in Caesarea. So they, they move him, and so during the, the passage we're going to be studying, we're going to see why he ends up being moved to Caesarea. But this is also why the Jews want him moved back to Jerusalem, because they are more likely to have him killed in Jerusalem. It's also why Paul, when he's given the option, look, you can, uh, you can go to Jerusalem to have your trial, why Paul says, well, I appeal to Caesar. Because if he's going to Jerusalem, he's not going to get a fair trial, and he's probably not even going to survive to the date of the trial. And so he appeals to Caesar. So by doing that, a couple of things happen. One is he saves his life. He doesn't get killed in Jerusalem. But another thing is he gets more and more opportunities to travel and to speak. In fact, by appealing to Caesar, he's going to be brought all the way to Rome, and he's going to be able to take the gospel with him. And so at the end of the book of Acts, Paul is in Rome, and he is able to teach people the gospel and, and proclaim the kingdom while in Rome, while he's awaiting trial. And what's fascinating is Acts ends before that trial even takes place. So it's like he's in Rome waiting and teaching, and the gospel is spreading, and that's the end of the book. And so what we're seeing here is how these plots against Paul's life end up leading to the gospel from Paul's own lips— traveling, reaching kings, reaching important people, reaching all the way to the capital of the ancient world. So that's, that's, uh, that's kind of what Jesus, I think, has in store for Paul throughout. But when you get to chapter 23, beginning of verse 12, this is that middle conspiracy. This is the one that moves him from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Here's the, the conspiracy, beginning in verse 12. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. All right, so they're saying we need to get this done and we need to get this done now. So to make sure that we don't just, uh, you know, talk a big game, we're all going to make an oath right here. We are not going to eat or drink until we get the job done. So last week on Sunday night, we talked about the tradition of zeal in Judaism, and how zeal doesn't just mean excitement for God. It actually has a very specific, a very specific meaning, which is uh, 
willing to use violence in order to defend and protect the word of God. Uh, you will defend Torah to the point that you're willing to fight and kill for Torah. So uh, it goes back to, to Phineas uh, there in the book of Numbers. You can see it in, in the Maccabees. You can see it even in the language of Paul. Paul, you know, with respect to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. Like, he was in that tradition of being a zealous for the law. We even use the word zealot um, to, to talk about a branch of Judaism that was willing to kill uh, Romans. Well, people who were zealous for the law, they were willing to kill for the law. And Paul was among that group. Upon his conversion to Christ, he left that ideology. And uh, even though he's still zealous for Jesus— He's zealous in a nonviolent way now. He doesn't think you should kill for Jesus. Even if people are blaspheming and completely disobeying and destroying the word of God, you don't resort to violence. That's not how you solve problems in the kingdom of God. And it's, it's a remarkable change that takes place in Paul. But for this group right here in Acts chapter 23 and verse 12, they are among that zealous tradition. And they think they're actually doing the will of God by... Uh, determining that they're going to kill him. That's how you defend God. That's how you protect him. That's how you protect his word. And so they think they're doing something, something righteous. And what they're going to do is say, we are going to sacrifice in order to get this done. We're going to fast, basically, in order to, uh, to make sure this is done. Um, I don't know if you're anything like me, but if I made a decision that I wasn't going to eat or drink until I accomplish something, I'd start working on it that very minute. Uh, I don't like to, to go long periods of time without eating and drinking. And so this means they are planning on doing this quickly and they're gonna be devoted to it. They really want to accomplish this. Um, spoiler, I do that sometimes, uh, they don't end up killing Paul right here. And so I'm curious if these 40 people starved to death or if they just kind of slowly, quietly backed away from their oath and, uh, and uh, started eating and just, just don't talk about it, you know. But, uh, but anyway, so that's the oath that they make. Verse 13, we find out how many are involved. It says, and there were more than 40 who formed the plot. And they came to the chief priests and the elders and the said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander, that's the Roman the tribune, the, the, the Roman leader, uh, to bring him down to you so that, and say that um, you are going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation, and we, on our part, are ready to slay him before he even comes near the place. So that, that's the plan. These 40 people, they're all sitting around and they're discussing what they're going to do. And they say, we're going to kill him. How are we going to do it? Well, let's promise, let's make an oath that we're going to make sure we do this. We won't eat or drink anything. We'll go to the chief priests and the scribes and we'll have them talk to the Romans and say, we want to do one more trial. We want to make sure we investigate everything carefully so that they have to bring Paul uh, to Jerusalem, bring him to the temple for this trial. But along the way, we, 40 people, we're going to lie in wait. We're going to hide in the bushes along the road, and we'll come out and we'll kill him along the way. That's their plan. Uh, and so the chief priests, they agree to this, um, so that's what, the, what they're going to try to do. There's a problem, though. Apparently, and you don't, this is fascinating to me, because you get a little glimpse into the life of Paul here that uh, we, don't, we don't talk, we don't know very much at all about. But someone who apparently is, was among that group or was near that group or was in the, the, the saloon where they were discussing it, I don't know where they were discussing it, but like someone who was there overheard their plans and he's actually someone who cares about Paul. Paul has a relative there. Um, if you look at verse 16, it says, but the son of Paul's sister 
heard of, of the ambush. And he came and he entered the barracks and told Paul. And so Paul's nephew hears about this. I'm curious how many people knew. I'm curious. That, that raises a lot of questions. One, apparently Paul has a sister and a nephew living in Jerusalem. And this just pops out of nowhere. We're not told anything about Paul's family up to this point. Uh, we know where he is from, and so we know that his family is from Tarsus of Cilicia. We know that he uh, grew up studying in Jerusalem. So even though he was from a faraway city, uh, he grew up in Jerusalem. But apparently his sister is there too, and her nephew is there. And uh, that's where they live, and her nephew is at least connected enough in society to know about an underground plot that's taking place. And so he hears of this, and he has to go tell Paul about it. So I wish, I wish at this point we could ask more questions, but we don't get anything else about like Paul's other relatives or about his sister or about their family or anything. But it's, it's just an interesting, to me, it's an interesting detail that tells us the Bible really focuses on what's important and it doesn't answer all of our questions that we, we might have to kind of like our personal interest stories, you know, and there's so many things like that that I, that I would be curious about. But uh, we do find out that Paul has a sister and that she has a son and that the son is able to find this out. And so he goes to the barracks and tells Paul. Well, verse 17, Paul then calls one of the centurions to him. Something that's fascinating about centurions, I don't know if you've ever studied uh, much about centurions in the Bible, but uh, basically they're in the Roman military, uh, they are generally very well spoken of, even outside the Bible, Roman centurions, uh, it was a very respectable position, uh, a, cent a centurion is going to lead a century, a century is going to be like a hundred people. Um, one of the things that's fascinating is Rome is not always spoken of well in the Bible. Uh, in fact, very rarely is Rome going to be like, is there going to be a glowing review of the Roman Empire? The Roman Empire is, is you know, the beast that, uh, that uh, is raised up and attacks and oppresses. And the Roman Empire is, uh, like, they, they are often associated with violence and wickedness. But every centurion that you come across in the, in the Bible or in the New Testament is at least in some way something positive is about him. Uh, whether it's someone who Jesus meets during his ministry or it was a Roman centurion who at the cross uttered the words uh, while Jesus was being crucified, truly this is the son of God, or it was a Roman centurion who was the first one to uh, become a Christian among the Gentiles. It was Cornelius who was a Roman centurion. Like whenever you see a, a centurion pop up in the story, it's, he seems to be a good guy or a noble person, someone who has an honorable character, someone who's willing to listen to the story of Jesus or is honest in what he's seeing. And so that happens regularly. And right here, Paul lets the centurion know, and the centurion's not the type of guy who says, uh, don't bother me with your stories. I'm going back to bed. Uh, the centurion hears about this. And he's going to do something about it. He's going to make sure that Paul's taken care of. Um, and so we'll talk about this a little bit more, but one aspect of the story that is fascinating is when you think of Paul and you think of like Roman persecution, it seems strange that at least at this stage, Rome is the one that Paul goes to for protection. Uh, Rome is the one who's going to make sure that Paul is protected. You know, and that's one thing that I think is helpful for us to at least remember about Roman persecution. We, we know that there was persecution and that lasts for hundreds of years in, in, from the beginning of Christianity. But that persecution was not always... Uh, systematic, empire-wide. It was not always legal. Um, in fact, even, uh, and also it wasn't usually because of, uh, like, because they didn't like Christians teaching or something like that. And what I mean by that is Nero 
was, is well known for his persecutions against the church. He did horrible things to these Christians. But why did he persecute the church? Was it because they were Christians? Was it because they believed Jesus was God or the resurrection? Well, actually, no. He has to trump up charges against them for arson. He says they tried to burn down the city. And so it's not that Christianity was illegal at that time. Burning down the city was illegal. And so he had to come up with something illegal that they had done. So it, Christianity wasn't always illegal uh, under the Roman Empire. Sometimes uh, there were persecutions, and Christianity does eventually become illegal. But at these days, uh, I mean, they don't even see a difference between Christianity and Judaism in any way at all. It's like when Claudius uh, gets tired of, of conflicts in uh, Rome, he just kicks all the Jews out of Rome, and that includes the church. Like, he just sees that as just a Jewish debate. And the same thing is true with all of these Romans that you run into in this story— they don't seem to be too interested in Christianity. They don't think, oh, Paul's a Christian, so I need to make sure he's arrested. It wasn't illegal to be a Christian. Rome actually didn't seem to care all that much. How many, who you worshiped, if you worship Jesus as, as God, fine, they, they don't care about that. They do care about who you don't worship, though, and this is where it ends up becoming a conflict, because Christians would not worship uh, the Roman emperor. They, would not, uh, they, they were not seen as, as loyal to the Roman Empire because they wouldn't worship the Caesar and call him Lord. Uh, they said there's a different Lord and a different king, and that's who we're going to worship. And so that made them immediately distrusted. And what tends to happen is, uh, say you have a, a group of people living in your society, and they don't worship any of your gods, and they don't, they're, they're disloyal to the empire, and then you have a fire, or you have a drought, or something really, an earthquake, you know, causes a destruction. And people think, well, who's responsible for this? Obviously, the gods are angry at us, and they're causing problems in our city, so who's responsible? Well, it must be those people who are angering the gods by not giving them any worship. They're not going to the civic celebrations. They're not honoring, you know, it's like there are a bunch of Christians eventually started to be called insurrectionists because they're disloyal to the empire. Sometimes they were even called atheists because they didn't worship the gods. And so those are the people who you end up blaming. And so those are the people people who you end up uh, attacking. And so that's kind of how some of these persecutions started. But it did not just start off with they're worshiping Jesus, they teach the resurrection, so Christianity is illegal. At this point, interestingly, Paul is actually going to Rome for protection. He uses his Roman citizenship because that seems safer than Jerusalem at this point. Um, and so Paul ends up uh, telling the centurion in verse 17, uh, or, or rather, Paul called the centurion to him and said, lead this young man, his nephew, uh, to the commander, for he has something to report to him. And so he took him and he led him to the commander and he said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he had something to tell you. And the commander took him by the hand and stepping aside began to inquire of him privately, what is it you want to report to me? So the commander doesn't, again, he doesn't just reject the meeting. He sees that there's a young man with a report, and so he takes him by the hand. He's like, all right, what is it you want to tell me? Uh, verse 20, he tells him the plot. He says, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul tomorrow to the council, to the Sanhedrin council, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them, for more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him, and they have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. 
And so he lets the, the Romans know what the Jews are planning on doing. So verse 22, so the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. I'm curious what happens with him from that point forward also. It's probably dangerous for him to have, have done that and then just to go back to his life. Uh, so this took some courage on his part. Um, it took, I mean, it took what would be seen by other people as you betrayed your fellow Hebrews to the Romans. You betrayed us for a heretic who's causing problems and defiling the temple and breaking Moses. Like, for him to then just go back. And so, probably very practical advice that the Roman uh, commander tells him, don't tell anyone, because on the one hand, it wouldn't be good for you if people found out that you, that you were the informant. Uh, but on the other hand, it, they don't want people to know because he's going to make sure that Paul is protected. And the more people who find out about this, probably the harder it's going to be for him to do what he's going to do. And so then verse 23, this is what uh, he plans to do. He's going to take Paul and he's going to uh, leave Jerusalem. It's just too dangerous for Paul to be there. And they're going to go up to Caesarea. That's going to be about 100 miles away. It'll take them a little bit of time to get there. In fact, they'll have to stop along the way. But uh, in verse 23, the commander calls two of the centurions and says, Get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. All right, you start counting those numbers. You have two centurions, and, and so you're going to get each of their hundred. So that's going to be 200 guys. And then 70 horsemen. So 70 guys on horses are going to uh, be with them. And then another 200 spearmen are coming who are, um, I guess, a little le under what the, what the regular soldiers would be. And so you have about 470 who are going to be accompanying Paul uh, because where they are right now, it's 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 hot. It's dangerous there. Uh, and so they're going to do whatever it takes to get Paul out of that city safely. Um, not only does he send Paul to Caesarea and does he send this large group, but he also writes a letter to uh, Felix, who is going to be there in Caesarea. And he's basically handing Paul over to him uh, because you can't have a fair trial where he is right now. And by the way, we do that same thing today sometimes with, with trials, where if one city, if if something is big news and like it's not safe to do the trial there or you're not likely to get a fair hearing there so you move it to a more neutral location uh, that seems to be what he's trying to do here with paul it's just jerusalem's not a good place for this trial so they're going to have him move to caesarea uh, he's going to write a letter to felix kind of explaining his view of the situation and you know, this is one of those things that's fascinating that Luke is able to tell us what that letter says. Uh, we're not sure if he's giving us the gist of the letter or if he's able to track down and, and you know, maybe through sources get some idea of what that letter said. But uh, here we have Luke writing down for us the contents of a letter uh, that kind of explains the Roman view of what, uh, what's going on with Paul. So uh, we'll read that letter here in just a minute. It's a real privilege to be able to read like a 2,000-year-old letter from a Roman commander to, to the governor Felix, and, and we get to. Um, but then verse 24. They were also to provide uh, mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter having this form. Claudius Lysias, uh, that's who's writing the letter. To the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. By the way, and this is just a, a brief note about kind of uh, the, the, perhaps the setting of, uh, or the kind of the introduction, introductory material to Luke and Acts. It's written to Theophilus. 
Uh, we're not told exactly who Theophilus is. Uh, I mean, the, the name Theos and uh, Philos or Phileo, uh, that's going to be uh, the word God and the word love. And so it's like the one who loves God is, is his name or the lover of God. Some people think that that's um, maybe in, like um, not a, in the name of a literal person, but maybe a church community or something like that. But it's also, I tend to think, makes more sense if it actually is a person. Because one of the things that's interesting um, is he does address it like he's a person. So it would be kind of figurative otherwise. But he calls him most excellent Theophilus. That's the language that's used to describe him. And if you look throughout the, uh, the writing of, of Luke, but then also Acts, whenever you see someone who is called most excellent uh, something, uh, it's going to generally be someone who is uh, a leading figure in uh, the, the Roman government. Uh, so like right here, you have it to most excellent Felix. When you get to chapter 24 and verse 3, you'll see that same description. We acknowledge that in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thanksgiving, and there you have actually the chief priests who use the language most excellent Felix. And so what I'm wondering as if Theophilus is actually someone who might have some sort of position of rank uh, among uh, Rome. And if you keep that in mind, and then you read through Luke and Acts, one of the things that becomes very obvious is the Romans never find anything illegal about what the Christians are doing. So it's like when Jesus goes on trial and he appears before the Romans, uh, whether you're talking about Herod or Pilate, who he's on trial before both of them in Luke, they both don't find anything on him. Uh, they end up eventually agreeing to his crucifixion, but it's not because they found him guilty of any crimes. And then as we go through these stories right here, like when uh, Paul is in Corinth, uh, the, the governors, they don't, they don't find anything necessarily that the Christians have done wrong. They're just trying to keep the peace. And so they don't, they don't really care about any, they don't think any laws have been broken. They just think, quit arguing about your little Jewish you know, fights and, and let's keep the peace here. Uh, and then in these stories right here, Paul appears before all of these uh, Roman officials, and like every one of them, after they meet with him, they say, I didn't find any laws that he broke. I didn't find that he did anything wrong. Uh, so certainly Christianity was controversial, but I wonder if one of Luke's goals is to show a Roman official that Christianity is not something that you need to persecute or that you need to have a problem with or that you need to, uh, to uh, you know, Christianity is something you can trust. They're not advocating for going out there and fighting against Caesar, or they're not advocating going out there and breaking laws. Like, Christians are actually people who, yeah, there has been a lot of controversy around us, but it's not been because of anything that we've done. And look at Paul. I mean, he, yes, he does go to trial before Caesar, but he willingly appealed to Caesar. And the people who, who tried him, whether it's Felix, Festus, or Agrippa, they say in chapter 26 and verse 32, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. It's like every time he's tried for something, they don't find anything wrong that he has done. And the book ends in chapter 28 by saying in verse 30 and 31, And Paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. The idea is that he's in Rome right now. And he's not causing, he's teaching, he's preaching, he's all about the kingdom of God, but he's not causing any problems, and he's able to do so unhindered. And that's the last phrase of the whole story of Luke and Acts. 
he's able to teach the word of God unhindered, even in Rome. So maybe he's kind of, this is an argument that that's the way it should be. Um, don't persecute, don't be suspicious, don't, don't think that there's any major problems going on here. It won't, you can let them teach the word of God and the kingdom of God unhindered, and, and it won't be a major issue. Anyway, that, that's at least one explanation of why every Roman who you meet ends up either becoming a Christian or doesn't see anything wrong with what, uh, with what they have done. They haven't broken any laws. That's, that, that's at least every Roman official that you meet, you, that seems to be the case. Um, so anyway, he writes in this letter, verse 26, he calls him Most Excellent Felix, uh, which reminds you that this is written to Most Excellent Theophilus. And then he says, greetings, verse 27. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And so here you have the, the, the Jews in Jerusalem wanting to kill him, but the Romans come to his rescue. And they also find out that Paul himself is a Roman. Verse 28, and wanting to ascertain the charge for which uh, they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. That's the Sanhedrin court. That's what happened in chapter 23 when Paul brings up the resurrection and they start fighting each other. Verse 29, and I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation worthy of death or imprisonment. And so even right here, the commander says, like, I have him. Uh, he's been arrested, but I don't, I don't think he's done anything wrong. Like, their law that they argue about, that, that seems to be their issue, but I haven't found anything worthy of imprisonment or death. And so, uh, verse 30, when I was informed that there was a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once and instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So he's sending him to Caesarea, but then he also says those who have the charges against him, let them bring them to you rather than me sending Paul to them. And so what that means is like the chief priests and the, the elders and the scribes, they have to pack their bags and make a hundred mile journey now for this court case, which I doubt is something they wanted to do. They're probably quite frustrated that now they have this responsibility to travel up there uh, to appear in court uh, to accuse Paul. That's what they do in chapter 24, by the way. We see that they get there. That's when the accusation happens. That's when Paul defends himself before Felix. But Notice in this letter, Paul's pretty much declared innocent. He's, I mean, go up there, have a trial, but I haven't seen anything wrong with uh, what he's done. Uh, they'll, they'll go up there too. They'll bring their case against him. What is interesting, though, about their case, I mean, if you remember what they're charging him of in, uh, in Acts chapter 21, they, saw, they said that Paul brought Gentiles into the temple. That's what they're accusing him of. But that's not something that Romans are going to care about. Uh, they're not going to say, like, oh, well, it's illegal to bring Gentiles to the temple. Romans don't care about that. So when they actually get to the trial, this is the way that they, they word his charges in a way that's going to make sure the Romans think, oh, okay, there is a problem here. Look at chapter 24 in verse 2. Um, so the chief, the high priest, uh, he goes there uh, along with the elders and other priests, but they also bring an attorney with them, like uh, someone who's professional. He's going to be able to do a good job at wording this case against Paul in a way that will appeal to the Romans. And this is the way that he says it in verse 2. 
Since we have through you attained much peace, talking about Felix, since through you, Felix, we've attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge that in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thanksgiving, so they're buttering him up to start off, uh, you know, you're doing such a great job ruling, and we're very thankful, and you're tremendous, uh, but then verse 4, here's the accusation, but that I may not weary you any further, I beg that you grant us, by your kindness, a brief hearing. For we have found this man, Paul, a real pest, uh, and a, that's, that's the way my translation says it, um, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout all the world, and a ringleader for the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple, and then we arrested him. All right, so... What you see right there is they bring up a couple of things. They say one thing that he does is he disturbs the peace. He causes riots in all these cities. He causes dissensions and fights in all these, these cities throughout, throughout your empire. Well, that's the type of thing that Rome's going to care about. If someone's going and causing uh, dissensions and disputes and fights in a bunch of cities, if he's disturbing the peace. But then also they mention him desecrating the temple. Uh, that's something that Rome would care about if you go into temples now they don't go into detail about what Paul did to desecrate the temple. Uh, but, you know, temples did matter to Rome. As a matter of fact, the temple in Jerusalem was uh, largely refurbished by the Romans. The Romans put a lot of money into the Jerusalem temple to make it big and beautiful and incredible. And it's one of, like, one of the most impressive temples of the ancient world. Like the Romans spent money to do that. And so that's the way that they're going to try to get Paul charged. He's causing disruptions in all of your cities and he's desecrating your temples. Uh, so that's not really what happened, but you can see how they've changed the language. They have a professional now who's going to try to change the language so that it, it makes the Romans more, uh, more antagonistic to Paul. Uh, Paul, however, will then get to make his peace, and even afterwards he still doesn't see anything legitimate that Paul has done that is deserving of this. So he just keeps Paul in prison for two years. Uh, he listens to him every once in a while, uh, but, uh, but he, doesn't, he doesn't really make any decisions about this. Then he's replaced by Festus, and, uh, and Festus doesn't see anything that he's done wrong, and so Festus has him appear before Agrippa, and Agrippa doesn't see anything that he's done wrong. But by that time, he said, I'm taking this all the way to Rome. I'm taking this all the way to Caesar. Anyway, as we get to uh, the end of chapter 23, we'll look at verse 31. It says, so the soldiers, this is after the letter's been written and after they've got the 470 people who are going to go with Paul, they're going to transfer him from Jerusalem to Caesarea. It says, so the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, they took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. Uh, so they're going to go to this other city. Now that's about 50 miles. So it's about halfway or so in between. Uh, and they take him by night, which is, which is really moving. Uh, and they take him by night to get him there. Uh, what's interesting about that is, uh, well, on the one hand, they, they kind of change their travel arrangements. But then you can see verse 32 says, but the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with them, they turned back to the barracks. So all of those people that went, all those soldiers, they don't go the whole way. They have the horsemen continue uh, the rest of the way with him, and everyone else just kind of turns back. So it seems like once they've gotten far enough away from the city, they don't need that much protection anymore. So a lot of the soldiers are able to return back to Jerusalem, return back to their barracks, but those on horseback get them the rest of the way there. Uh, verse 33, 
When these uh, had come to Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor, and they also presented Paul to him. And when he had read it, he asked from what province he was, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, that Paul's from Tarsus in Cilicia, he said, well, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, and giving orders for him to be kept in uh, Herod's Praetorium. So now Paul is in Caesarea, and they decide that they're going to They'll keep them there until uh, the, the, those making the accusations in Jerusalem, until they make the trip to Caesarea. And so uh, that's how the story goes. That, that's the plot and how Paul eventually uh, was able to escape it. And throughout this, there are a couple of points, I guess, that, that strike me. Some of them we've already noted. Uh, one of them is, you know, Jesus and, and God, uh, you know, they are so active throughout Luke and Acts. Um, Jesus is said to rescue Paul from, uh, from Gentiles and from Jews in chapter 26. Uh, right before this event, Jesus appears to him in a vision telling him to take courage. But one thing that's interesting about this is that it's not actually, like, you don't see any mention of, like, God doing anything in the story or Jesus appearing and doing anything in the story. Uh, you see that it's, you know, Someone here over, you know, Paul's nephew overhears the plot. He's able to go to Paul. Paul's able to tell the commander, the commander, the centurion. The centurion tells the commander. The commander comes up with this plan. They bring Paul up to Caesarea. But like so many stories in the Bible, um, I think this could be a lesson in how God providentially works in ways that you don't necessarily always need to see a miracle. Uh, sometimes God is able to work through people and through circumstances and through uh, you know, governments or, or police or, or whatever to accomplish what his will is. I think you see that happening right here. I think this is an example of God protecting Paul. But God doesn't always protect uh, in a way where, you know, he rains, uh, you know, fire down from heaven on your enemies. Sometimes he protects in this way right here. Uh, another thing that I think is interesting about this, not only the lesson in God's providence, but also that salvation, and I'm using the term salvation here in a rather physical sense, uh, the, the idea of being saved from your enemies or something like that, but that can come in, from some surprising sources. Uh, Again, when we think of early Christian persecution, we don't usually think of going to Rome for help. <laughs> we tend to think of Rome being the ones who are causing it. But here, Paul is able to get, like, I mean, abundant aid from the Romans. I mean, incredible amount of, of service. They, they used 470 soldiers to bring him to safety. Uh, I mean, th that's really incredible how helpful Rome was. And what uh, it makes me think of are passages like Romans chapter 13. Uh, so, for example, in Romans chapter 13, and this is written when Rome actually is doing more persecuting of the church, but in Romans chapter 13, Paul says some things about, uh, about God and, and governments. And, you know, throughout the story of the Bible, God doesn't usually um, approve of what governments are doing. You know, it's like Babylon— or Egypt, or even most of the time Israel, like any, any big government you see is usually doing stuff that's opposed to God. And yet one thing that God also does is sometimes he will find ways to use even godless and sinful governments 
to accomplish his will. Uh, so he'll, he'll call ba- uh, Nebuchadnezzar a servant uh, as he's talking about the, the 70 years of Babylonian captivity. He says, my servant Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in and destroy. And that doesn't mean that Nebuchadnezzar is a good guy. That means that God is go- able to use even a wicked king to do something of value for, uh, for his purposes. And you see that same idea pop up in Romans 13, where he says in verse 1, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinances of God, and they have also opposed. Uh, sorry, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a curse of fear for good behavior, but for evil. And uh, do you want to have no fear of authority? Well, do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. All right, so you always have to be careful when you're reading the Bible not to read passages uh, devoid of context or devoid of, like, the rest of the Bible. Uh, Because, I mean, you, you, you can look at that and you can think, Really? Innocent people never get punished by the government? I mean, that happens a lot. Look at Jesus. Uh, Jesus was an innocent person, and the government did horribly wicked things to him, and he, and he died. You can certainly find uh, exceptions, but I think there are, there's a general principle at play here that God can use even the Roman Empire, which would be like the thing that you would least suspect God to be producing good from. God can even use them to be his ministers to uh, punish wickedness and also to to protect and to save that which is good. And if you're looking for examples of God doing that, I think we just read one. I think we just read an example where Paul has wicked being planned against him and God saves him. How does God save him? By using the the Roman military, by using uh, uh, an empire that often isn't able, it doesn't produce much good on their own. God is able to work through them to produce something of value. And so, I guess one of, the, one of the lessons that you can learn from that is that God can work in surprising ways. Salvation can come in surprising ways and from surprising places. And Paul is able to take advantage of that. And he's able to do so in such a way that the gospel now has more opportunity to spread because of all things the protection and help he got from the Roman military. Uh, they're eventually going to become some, some pretty avid persecutors of the church. But at this time, Paul's actually able to have more opportunity to teach the gospel because he appealed to them. Uh, and so you can't always predict what God's going to do, and you can't always predict who's going to be there uh, to help. God can do some incredible things in some incredible and unexpected ways. And uh, you see that all the way throughout Acts. This is just one example that, that sticks out in my mind. Um, but if there's anyone here tonight who uh, maybe you'd like the prayers of the church, or you're going through something in your life that, uh, that uh, you would like the church to know about and to help you through, or if there's anyone here who maybe there's sin in your life you're struggling with, we would love to be able to help and encourage you through that. And also, if there's anyone who would like to become a Christian, uh, please let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.